This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast networks. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast about the politics of a galaxy far, far away and what it can teach us about our own world right now. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and this is episode 74, Star Wars in the Middle Kingdom. Joining me today as guest co-host is Riley Blanton, host of the famed Star Wars Report and Mouse and Castle, a podcast about all things Disney. Riley can be found occasionally tweeting at the Riley guy. Riley, welcome to Beltway Banthas. Well, hi, hi. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a long time. I feel like you haven't come on since The Force Awakens, possibly. <laughs> like, it has. Like, it's been far I too long. Are yeah. No. I, so we, I, can we keep the Jeb Bush meme going? Or is it, I think it's a little past. That's like around the last time I came on. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So you were on. Nothing has happened in the world of politics or Star Wars since that time. So, yeah, I, I remember now. So you were on during the GOP primary leading up to the 2016 election and sort of the idea that Kylo Ren was sort of the the make uh, the empire great again candidate of Star <laughs> Wars. And uh, yes, there were there were Jeb Bush memes to go around. Yes, yes. Oh, back in the day, back in the hey, the, another debate night as we record this. I oh. know. I didn't realize till I was having my morning coffee today that it's a debate night, <laughs> and we watch every one <laughs> with uh, great anticipation. Well, the the era, I think, even since 2016. Uh, sorry, I'm totally derailing your show right off the top, but but uh, I'll, I'll keep it short. The since 2016 the sort of level of outrage and instant reaction across like social media and stuff has, has amplified so much that it kind of, it puts the 2016 GOP debates to shame the level of like analysis and scrutiny. And it almost makes it, it's like more of a sporting match than ever for seeing one candidate to screw up or one candidate own the other candidate. Well, e- even more than, than that, I am really appalled at what has happened with the town halls. Um, oh, yeah. They, it was it was something that I, I went on TV and, and even wrote some articles about how I thought like the town halls were like the future of the presidential kind of debate and forum model. I was very excited about CNN's initial town halls. I thought it was substantive. It gave candidates, you know, one-on-one a whole hour to sort of really lay things out in depth. But then CNN uh, has really gone down, I think, the wormhole of doing issue-based town halls uh, where where you know they're they're basically like all right so a gun control town hall an lgbtq town hall an environmental town hall and by nature of doing that and making it a single issue mm. event you pull in uh, an audience that basically demand you to take the most extreme position or you're an awful person. And the end result of this is every candidate has to fall over themselves in front of this live audience to take mm. the most extreme position. <laughs> it's it's a really self-defeating idea when you really think about it. Um, I'm not sure the DNC has really thought this through. You, you know, like, like years ago, um, Bill Burr, the comedian mm-hmm. did a stand-up set in Philadelphia that that's now infamous because it was he, he's far enough in his career to where he's a pretty established working comedian. He I think he'd had a couple shows, a bunch of gigs and specials, but the crowd was so hostile that he sort of seized the moment and kind of channeled what he's known for, which is some of his most skillful roasting. <laughs> and his sort of personal hatred of the city of Philadelphia. <laughs> and he just, he just leaned into the hatred of the crowd and just like went to war on the mic and then just dropped it and left. And that set sort of became a world renowned, at least in the you know comedy circles, um, event where he, he uh, stuck it to the crowd that were being total jerks to him. And so 
you know, outside of that small insular circle, everyone else looking, you know, outside in, you know, he was like the hero of the situation. And I'm waiting for that to happen in one of these political debates uh, on either side where the, the core audience or the people in the room are the most extreme when it comes to the positions. But I'm, I'm waiting for the, the Ron Paul kind of candidate who just like doesn't care. Well, that's I what I that's what I very much appreciate about the transparency, the radical transparency of Bernie Sanders, in that he, you know, he went on Fox News and got a standing ovation and basically had won over the crowd in their town hall with Bernie um, when this was hosted by Shep Smith and Chris Wallace, I believe, um, um, were the anchors for that. And the the news the next day was that Bernie Sanders won the Fox News town hall by taking the audience with him. And just, you know, appealing to their sensibilities. Actually, I'm sorry, not appealing to their sensibilities, but just being honest. And mm-hmm. it was it was a moment where you saw that, like, you know, these conservative, apparently conservative voters at this town hall are very open to things like Medicare for all. They're very open to going after um, the 1% for more taxes. It's just sort of that outside of the Fox News bubble, you don't actually hear that conservative voters or people on the right do mm-hmm. think that way in many cases. Um and I, I'm sort of waiting for other candidates to embrace that. I mean, when Bernie Sanders is asked if he's going to raise taxes, he says yes. <laughs> you know, and Elizabeth Warren kind of tries to get out of it. You're, you're right. Even to a conservative audience, that's refreshing. You're like, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Um, not that waffling of like, well, actually, with the premiums and that, yeah. Although I, I will say this. I just appreciate the how much uh, the Fox News Network has come to value the journalism of Shepard Smith. I'm so glad. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, we're, we're really entering a new golden age of journalism as Shep Smith is uh, anointed the king of... Fo- oh, wait. Oh, no. He's gone. Oh. Okay. Wow. Right. <laughs> Riley, these yeah. are all bad things. I want to talk to you about a good let's, thing. Let's so. bring some joy. Let's bring some magic, if you will. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I have some magic for you. Um, this Thursday, I'm going to Galaxy's Edge Thank for, you. yes, it's happening. It is happening. I am going to Galaxy's Edge this Thursday in Anaheim for uh, during a business trip to Los Angeles. It's a, it's a really just incredible sort of story and tale of like what podcasting can get you into. Is one of the yeah. listeners one of the listeners of this show um, is also sort of in in my sphere of of, uh, of work and and business. And we're going to go out there. We met on this show. We're going to go out there do an event together and then go to Galaxy's Edge. Mm-hmm. And it's my first time experience. Experiencing it, but this is a real lead up to November when I am taking my daughter and mm, wife yeah. to Galaxy's Edge in Orlando. So this trip to Anaheim, I'm doing it sort of like as a research visit to sort of get yep. a feel for what Galaxy's Edge is like, what I need to do and then not do when I take the whole family in Orlando uh, in November. You are the host of Mouse and Castle, all things Disney, and you've been to Galaxy's Edge how many times? Uh, it's embarrassing. Um, one, two, just say it. Four, four, (laughs) four, California, and uh, and once to once, although it was it was literally for an hour. Yeah. uh, in in Orlando. So, Um, first question is: Are they literally the same? Basically, There's okay, they are the same. Differences, very subtle differences, but ostensibly the same. Okay, so yeah. give me, yeah, I don't know, give me sort of your your top line takeaways for how to have a the best possible experience at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge as I think myself and then uh, my listeners and the listeners of the show are, are kind of thinking about when they're going to go do Galaxy's Edge themselves because this is a dream. Yeah, Evidently everybody is because I'm the exception here because nobody else went. I was <laughs> I went immediately when it opened pretty much. Um, but then we had the whole series of news stories over the summer of them struggling to hit the crowd capacity that they were originally expecting. Yeah, um, I think that's because most people are like me. They they sort of assume it's going to be swamped and then they wait. <laughs> well, and then on a very outside of our bubble and the nerd bubble and even the Disney like nerd, but which I've in the last year that I've been doing the Mouse and Castle podcast is it's it, it's its own monster, uh, so much bigger, but just as political as the Star Wars online universe um, in some ways. But it turns out you have to market your stuff. 
even Star Wars. Um, Bob Iger famously um, said on an earnings call in the first quarter of last year that ah, I'm just going to have to tweet that it's open. There's so much anticipation for this. Uh, <laughs> words. As like if you've been on Facebook and you and you like any Star Wars stuff, you're seeing all the social media ads. And <laughs> last week, no, two weeks ago, Disney marshaled every single bit of their marketing empire to do like an, a Good Morning America special. Uh, Product a placement in all of their dramas on TV or in their shows. Yeah. yeah so there's some of their ABC programs made mention and did product placement of Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> yeah, and then they did an hour long special with Neil Patrick Harris. Yep. Don't forget an hour long special on, um, it's not ABC Family anymore, but it's you know, whatever replaced it. Yeah, Freeform, and then um, a whole episode of the Goldbergs. They go to Disneyland and Galaxy's oh Edge. Part of that, it, I know. Isn't that kind of... Uh, I don't know. I think that's sort of like where more my anti-monopolistic mind kind of goes in. I'm like, ew, it's just kind of gross. <laughs> are, are you ready, sir? Also featured on um, whatever the main sports show on ESPN. They do a segment on Galaxy's Edge and they took them out. ESPN. They took the ESPN guys out to Galaxy's Edge and they did a segment on it. Oh my gosh. Um, Disney owns everything. So oh I say gosh. all that, I, I'm, that you're because I've totally not answered your question. Not as even as, like, one bit. You're a politician. No. Uh, I know, right? Um, but I do think that it illustrates uh, the first thing that you don't have to worry too much about, which I think has actually been a really good thing, is that it's not obscenely crowded and the lines aren't obscenely long. However, um, I'm going to start with what not to do. Because this is, um, I just listened to um, podcasts from my buddy, uh, Justin Robert Young on the weird things. And he had just gone out to Orlando and he just showed up. And so his review of the park was, this is kind of crappy. There's only one big ride. It's a pretty long line. Everything else is these uh, boutique experiences, most of which you have to pay a lot of money for or go shopping or if you want Star Wars style food. And that's sort of the negative reaction. And that's when you don't plan. Because if you want to uh, hang out at the cantina, it's Disney. You got you to do your due diligence and get a reservation. Um, and they have this reservation system going on. If you want any of the other premium experiences, the lightsaber building, you need to pr- plan the stuff ahead and y- use your uh, Disney app to actually book the experiences that you want. But what is it about Galaxy's Edge that you're looking for? What parts of the experience do you want to go when you go? And of course, when you're taking the family. Well, I guess, so I guess you you kind of mentioned what I am most uh, afraid of and anxious about is spending money on boutique yeah. experiences. You know, mm-hmm. I think the the assumption of any child when they go to some, you know, someplace like this is that they're going to go, oh, you know, I'm, we got into Galaxy's Edge. Well, let's go make a lightsaber. Let's go make mm-hmm. a droid. Let's go, mm-hmm. he- let's go here. Let's go do that. Um, and, and I'm sitting there going, oh my God, I just, you know, I just emptied out our savings to get us in the door um, and get us down. <laughs> Down here to Orlando, so I'm I'm pretty mortified about um, what I'm going to have to do to my credit card um, to make this a memorable experience. With there only being one ride, and the rise of the resistance doesn't open until two weeks after we're going. Um, yeah. So it's going to be just the one the one Millennium Falcon ride, and I guess that's kind of what I'm looking for is to um, have an immersive experience, go there, role play, have fun. Um, but I'm not looking to, to take out a, take out a loan. Yeah, no. And I think that's, and that's what you have to decide up front. So you don't deal with that. Because here's the thing, you stay in the benefit kind of following this stuff fairly closely of what most parents don't know when they walk into galaxy's edge, which is when they want it, when they walk up to build their lightsaber they're like, well, that'll be 200 bucks, please. You're like, jeez. Um, or the droid building experience which is like a hundred bucks, I think. Um, and I've done not, not, I've done, I've done neither of those experiences because I'm, I'm not made of money. Uh, I also haven't, um, uh, I did neither of those experiences. I did Millennium Falcons ride, but I also haven't been to the cantina because I haven't, um, been, and I've been there, I've been there four times, but I've never actually gone with, how is that possible that you haven't done the cantina? Who, who knows who's into star Wars as I am and knows as much as I do about planning. Um, 
the first two times when I went, they didn't have the reservation system. You had to go in person and it's not, I, I couldn't make it to, I was in a group of friends. And so to drag the whole group of friends on the Disney trip to galaxy's edge at park opening, you know, uh, when everyone's been out late the night before, just to get the reservation, like, all right, we'll come back here in six hours, eight hours, and then we'll enjoy our reservation. It's just not a seamless experience. So even though I would enjoy that, I haven't gone to the trouble that it takes. <laughs> so I think that's a good illustration of for some of these experiences, how you have to to handle them to be able to enjoy it most. So I, I, I think my 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 biggest recommendation for you is to go in the morning um, and that's when the crowds are least and that's when it's the easiest to snag uh, reservations for later in the day. And I think you can do it. I don't know how far out you can do it for the online reservations. I actually don't know the exact breakdown between what I wish I had Aaron on uh, from Mouse Castle because he would know off the top of his head because I know the Cantina reservations online go way out in Disney World. I don't mm-hmm. know how they're doing it land. But um uh, it, you really do have to like sit down weeks ahead, open up your Disney app. Um, and this is the Disney app. experience app. Yeah. My, you know, uh, the Disneyland app or the, my Walt Disney world experience app. Yeah. Um, and they really are pushing towards that. And it really does. It sounds, I sound like a, like a Disney salesman. I'm like, use the app guys. But it really, it really does uh, cut past a lot of those negative experiences you have when you don't bother to plan ahead. And this has been the case with Disney for a long time. Um, it's just, if you just go there and this is, sounds bad to say out loud, but if you just go there and expect to just have a great time as a star Wars fan and not be disappointed, if you're not, if you don't know ahead of time, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Your wallet's going to be disappointed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's really, I think where the preparation comes in. Okay. Well, that's that's pretty helpful. I, I remember there was some sort of big blog review uh, that I was sent about Galaxy's Edge and kind of how to make it work. And, and it definitely is a, a planning sort of experience. Um, yeah. Sort of what you what, sort of what like you've laid out small a couple small quick tips um, in don't let them rush you when you're in the Millennium Falcon and you're hanging out inside and you can kind of tour around. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes especially if the crowds aren't too bad. Um, you can kind of, you, you don't have to like be waiting on edge. They're not going to like say, well, all right, next group. Sorry guys. Yeah. You uh, can linger a little bit, sit down and check out the other uh, game table. And because that time based on crowd levels tends to vary a lot. So that first time through, you really do want to kind of get a, a good look around and then take it in and don't be distracted by, Oh wait, who do I have to talk to? Who do I need? Because the first time I went, I barely saw, I like saw the, um, chess table. I was like, Oh, that's cool. Where do I turn in my card? Am I an engineer or the pilot? I don't know. Um, you know, it, it lets you do that. Um, and, and just enjoy yeah. that. How does that, um, how does that experience work with the Falcon, uh, where you're sort of assigned, I guess, a role in piloting, um, you uh, go in works, and then what happens? Works far better as a, uh, the, the ride is designed for a group and works far better as a group. So if you're going with, it's up to six people. Um, you got uh, two gunners, two engineers, a pilot, and a co-pilot, and each have unique roles uh, for a pretty immersive smuggling run experience that has some fun twists and turns along the way that I won't spoil. But um, here's the deal. The better you are at doing your job, uh, the longer the ride lasts. So the more skilled you are as far as, you know, shooting down TIE fighters or piloting and not, you know, hitting everything as you fly. Really? <laughs> um, yeah the uh, the further you can get through the experience. Now, that's probably the difference of like, you know, seven minutes and nine minutes. But hey, it's kind of cool, um, depending on how far you uh, get. Um, and so that's pretty cool. But I do, for the uh, Smuggler's Run experience, definitely go with a group. Um, it's, a, it's a lot more fun. If, if you are, you know, in a mixed group or... God forbid, if you're just there by yourself with a bunch of strangers, <laughs> kind of be that guy. You can just kind of like, <laughs> this is what I do. I kind of really get into it, really verbalize of like, coming in on the left, coming in on the left, take him out. 
and like yelling at the gunner. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, not, it's more fun. Like if you're like uh, coordinating and, um, you know, just trying to take the mission seriously instead of just expecting. Yeah. Like, when I'm, when I'm in Anaheim this week, I'm going to be just me, me and a friend. And then in November, I'm going to be in a group of five. Um, possibly a group of six actually oh, so perfect. that will be a, an instance and we'll all be role-playing i think we're all going to kind of uh, put together some some Ooh. civilian wear costumes for the experience um some that civilian wear sort my, of cosplay yeah and then we're going to take on my next tip actually character is, names because we all sort of have some characters in the star wars universe that we use uh and we're going to go there and just sort of be nice. in it and that's that's the plan for november which i'm very excited about Dude, and that'll make such a difference because you you can kind of prompt cast members and they will definitely interact with you guys, um, which for Sylvie would be amazing. I think she would totally get a kick out of that. It's really fun, uh, especially if you guys are kind of more resistance. You can hang out in the resistance area and you might run into Ray and that, you know, that's always kind of cool. What about or, if you're kind of first order? And if you're first order, you can go hang out in the uh, first order section and you you will almost certainly encounter. Are, are there walls between where you can go based on an affiliation you choose? No, it's a sort of natural um, sorting. It's kind of brilliant. Uh, it's an it's a natural geographical separation. So one entrance of the park is on the resistance side, where Rise of the Resistance is. Uh, right now, it's kind of more empty because there's nothing up there other than a few like standalone booths. But it's where if you've seen pictures of the A wing or the X wing photo ops uh those are in that section of the park and that's where ray comes and hangs out chewbacca yeah. comes out there and they they kind of don't really they mosey down towards the sort of main shopping center the i'll call it the casablanca if you will i just rewatched that movie the other night actually um <laughs> this sort of neutral town stuck in the midst of the war um but that that they kind of stay away from Ray stay, and Chewbacca stay away from the town and the troopers and Kylo Ren will venture around uh, that area and the Millennium Falcon, which is parked in the bay. Uh, and then, of course, the resistance areas where the TIE fighter is and it's kind of shaped like a fortress wall, which looks kind of like it's the entrance of a fortress. But if you walk through it, it's just the exit to the rest of the parks. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of a neat geographical, like if you're depending on how you're dressed or where to find. Um, yeah, I've I've heard varying consistency on the appearance of the characters, but uh, from what I'm hearing, especially Disneyland is pretty good about you'll see them pretty regularly. Yeah, so I kind of got a sense of what not to do. Um, yeah. You know how to best handle the Millennium Falcon, the the perks of sort of going with an immersive experience, and the geographic layout uh, to bring us sort of across the, the the finish line here. What would you say is the thing to look for and definitely try to do while you're there, given that it's kind of limited between um, boutique merchant experiences and and the Millennium Falcon. What should one try to prioritize while they're there? So, of course, a, a Smuggler's Run, for sure. It's the centerpiece of the park right now. Um, and so that is your must-do. Uh, but since I already talked about that, um, I'll toss in a secondary one. If you don't want to be spending, if you don't have that budget for the droid building or lightsaber experience, which if you do, it's great. Um, and if you're going to choose one of them, choose the lightsaber building. Um, but it's about three, uh, about $300 between both of them. You said, I <laughs> know. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, if you, uh, for the more boutique shopping experiences, that's kind of more in universe. I really like the creature shop because, um, it's, you're basically adopting a pet and you kind of go through it in universe and it's kind of cute and the little box, the collectible box is shaped like a little kind of animal cage. And so I adopted a porg and sent it to my, uh, buddy and producer of the Star Wars Report, Bruce Gibson, <laughs> he's a big fan <laughs> of the Porgs. Uh, but you can get there's a lot of like cute creatures there, and those will only set you back like twenty or thirty bucks, and that's a little more reasonable if you want to kind of experience something kind of fun. Uh, of the various small shops, that's probably my favorite. Uh, and then a parting shot, uh, best piece of food, and I've had a decent amount of the food. Uh, best item to eat in the whole park, bar none, is the Ronto wrap. Except no substitutes. 
<laughs> All right, Riley Blanton, Mouse and Castle in the Star Wars Report, with his sort of breakdown and guide to Galaxy's Edge, which uh, yours truly will be visiting here this fall. Very excited. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Star Wars in the Middle Kingdom, a look at how Disney, Star Wars, and Hollywood in general is wrestling with the problems of Chinese censorship. You're listening to Beltway Banthas, Star Wars, Politics, and More. Brought to you by the RetroZap Podcast Network. Join us on Discord and continue the conversation. Email beltwaybanthas at gmail.com for your invite to join the channel. Then you can chat with host Stephen Kent and your fellow Banthas about Star Wars and politics anytime. All right, and we're back with episode 74, Star Wars in the Middle Kingdom. You've all heard a great deal this past week about the NBA and their subservience to Chinese interests when it comes to political speech within their ranks. Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, had tweeted support for Hong Kongers, and this ignited a firestorm just a few days after a South Park episode, ripping Hollywood up and down for their collusion with Chinese censors to tap into their large audience market. The reason that we're talking about this is because there really is a clear-cut Star Wars angle here that we need to unpack for the politics of Disney and the politics of Star Wars and really just what these these uh, this company and these franchises are going to be willing to take on in a globalized um, you know entertainment market. Riley, what did you make of this entire week for the NBA um, and maybe the South Park episode as well if you are tuned into their take on the entire issue yeah I, I, I there's so much here uh, I, I think you, you have to zoom out for just a second and say that this is a very complex political issue where there is probably there's there's no clear right and wrong answer that's simple. I think there are certain moral truths when it comes to how companies and how the United States is dealing with China and censorship and freedom of expression, but versus businesses being free to make the deals they want to make. Like, There's a lot of arguments and a lot of subtleties that we can go into, but the context, especially of the, the protests going on right now, um, it really kind of pit a sort of U.S. versus China geopolitical bent on all of this stuff. So whether we're talking about Disney or the NBA or Star Wars, there's this sort of, um, uh, <laughs> I don't know, red, white, and blue versus uh, China mentality. And I feel like it's a disservice if I don't uh, show my cards, kind of. Uh, so I think it's fair to say that as someone who is currently in the military, I definitely, having said all of that about how complex the issue is and how I am by no means equipped to intelligently comment on all the political subtleties, at my base, I'm, ju- I'm just a, a, a big fat red, white, and blue uh, pro-America guy. And Yeah, and well, you know, it's... it's to it, but I, yeah, I, it's when I, when I see... Like in the protests, protests, something is charged, and we talked about this at DragonCon when you came out. Something is charged as symbology of the American flag and the mm. American national anthem being used in these protests. Like for me, I understand that that's like really charged rhetoric in some ways, but I just I love the symbolism of of what the ideal there is, and I think that's really important for both American policymakers and American companies like the NBA or Disney to recognize because they can't have it both ways. And I think that's kind of the big picture we have to deal with at the start. Yeah, well, there's been sort of an idea going back many decades that China, as as the world got became increasingly globalized, that they were going to sort of move to join the rest of the world, particularly the Western world, and democratize to a certain extent yeah. so that they could do business and sort of be part of the explosion of wealth in the West. And they did get to experience that explosion of wealth in the past 20 to 30 years. But they have done so while tightening their grip, expanding their authoritarian regime, and then ex- exporting censorship of many varieties to trading partners like the United States, because I think that they kind of call our bluff that we put money 
above everything <laughs> as a as a country. And I think that that might be where they sort of have pegged us as maybe being a little bit phony uh, as in terms of where we stand on our ideals. Like, yeah. you know, that Hollywood, um, they, they believe in certain things. They believe in freedom and speech, but they're not going to do that at the expense of making money and, and getting their movies out there. It's... Um, I don't know. I, I really feel like the uh, the Red Dragon has sort of figured out what our, our greatest weakness is, and it says a lot about us. Well, I mean, you, you use the NBA as an example because um, a, a American Sports League, and, and NBA is no exception, especially in recent years, have sort of become a champion of champions of political expression, especially here stateside. Um, players and coaches famously are willing are willing to and and freely able to critique the current administration or really either side of the aisle and that's something that there's at least still yeah the charlotte hornets um tore north carolina apart over hb2 the uh the bathroom bill oh yeah here in north carolina where i live they were very eager to get involved there um but you would find very quickly that they would uh, they'd squelch comments about um uh uyghur internment camps in in the in mm. in, in china uh, because that is not good business for them and you know, I think we sort of have here that the real tensions of freedom and and sort of what the capitalist mindset enables us to do from a moral standpoint. Um, you know, China has the benefit in many ways of being unified between the business and government sector. There's there's lockstep sort of uh, cooperation there where they both do the same thing because they're both run by the same people. Here in the United States, our governing philosophy and our business philosophy have completely different tracks and you're able and free to go off and make money even if the profit is not necessarily good or principled uh, but the problem is that it's it's i don't know it, it it sort of seems like we're complicit in allowing china to enjoy the perks um, of the d democratic western world while continuing to oppress their own and solidify their power like the fact that they get to enjoy Iron Man, for example, <laughs> and then change aspects of it. And actually, maybe not Iron Man is a great example. Bohemian Rhapsody. The fact that they get to enjoy Bohemian Rhapsody as a movie and remove all homosexual content from the film. I was actually going to ask about to, that. Yeah, to me, I think that's I think that's pretty egregious. Like, I think that if you are going to remove that context from the movie and the Freddie Mercury story, mm. then your people should not get to see Bohemian Rhapsody. And you as a government got to grapple with the, the consequences of that, whether or not it's going to foment dissent, whether or not it's going to foment anxiety about the government. I don't think we should be participating in keeping the Chinese populace happy with great entertainment unless they're willing to take it for what it is. Mm. And that's uh, and that's so it's so tough to say because like and that's where whose decision is it? It's so complicated. Is it the director of the film? Is it the studio that financed the film? Is it, um, I don't know, the litany of creative forces behind the film that makes it happen? Like, where, at what point and where does the compromise come in? Because if we bring in Star Wars, even Star Wars, I think you could argue, has, has made some compromises. Yeah, they have. And I, I think that's a really good segue over to like, you know, Star Wars in particular, they're part of the Disney family. They are, uh, thankfully, they have not made great changes, editorial, uh, casting, or, or sort of story-based changes to break into the Chinese market, which, you know, like we've kind of said, is huge and has become sort of really pivotal to the tentpole movie model that Hollywood is surviving off of these days. Going back to 1977, Star Wars was banned. This was a movie that was not allowed at all, along with other foreign films that made it into China at that time. Um, in fact, the first movie that ever made it into China was The Fugitive, <laughs> which I think that is uh, I, that's a choice. I don't really know why, but it was a great movie. Good choice, China. Um, but largely, Star Wars has steered clear of this, where other major franchises has sort of have sort of dove into it headfirst. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, uh, when you, when you it, it's kind of you can make the slippery slope argument, which I always think it's funny when people say, and that's a slippery slope because the the very definition of slippery slope is that it's a logical fallacy. 
Um, so here I am, you know, guilty of the same thing. But when you look at um, the idea of uh, you, you post a link to it, and I think it's a perfect example. The uh, um, editing of the Force Awakens poster, where Finn mm-hmm. is rather obviously minimalized uh, or minimized visually, uh, it's kind of it's it's a small change, certainly compared to like the entire subplot of in Rhapsody, but it's still a change. Yeah. You know, so the backstory here is that the Chinese edition of the force awakens promotional poster took Finn from being sort of the third largest figure on the American movie poster where he's, I don't know, like an eighth of the poster and they squished him down to being like a 16th of the poster. They removed Chewie altogether and Maz Kanata and also took out Poe Dameron. So right here, you have just some major questions about why. Why would they? Why would they do this? Um, in China, there is a a real issue of racism and sort of colorism um, against uh, against dark skin races, against Africans. Um, that is a problem, a cultural thing that has always gone on in China, and you have to wonder. You know, to what extent does does Disney, you know, have to kind of look the other way and do movie studios have to look the other way when China removes some of these characters just to make their their government happy and then insult uh, the character of of Finn and John Boyega by allowing him to be shrunk on the poster because they do get to sign off on that. That's something they they can agree to or say no to. Um, but then there's dollars at play if they decide to say no. Yeah, and it's and I wonder where that decision's made. If there's like a Chinese bureau within Disney that's like, all right, how how can we sell this uh, to a, a difference? Because there's certainly room for like creative yeah. differences in how you present a film and how you market a film. My my understanding in in just some brief readings of this is that there are Chinese um, agencies that work out of Los Angeles, right? That sort of are proxies of the United or of the Chinese government, and they have a presence in Hollywood. They have a presence on film sets and studios where they're basically like consultants. Um, for understanding how Chinese censors are going to think about certain content. So movie studios can basically kind of call these consultants who, who are proxies for the Chinese government and they're, they're sort of profiting off of knowing what the censorship model is going to, to be. Um, and they will consult on your scripts, consult on what's going on in the film and offer you sort of the best paths forward for dealing with Chinese censorship. It's a, it's a gatekeeping model. Yeah. It's sort of a self-enriched model by some actors but that i think that is literally how it goes and south park yeah. kind of makes fun of that to the extent that they have uh, chinese agents on the set of some south park scenes whispering in movie producers ears and letting them know what they can by the way i haven't do. seen the whole episode but i was watching a couple clips before we recorded and i'm not a south park person like the, the sense of humor is not necessarily my thing but man i kind of appreciate the the charged political commentary with the way that they handled this yeah, yeah, it was it was a it was a good episode. I think it was a little preachy. I think I think South Park has largely lost their their wit and their ability to sort of project like political narratives, and they're just incredibly literal. Um, but that being said, it was a very good episode. I, I mean, it's and, working for right now. Yeah. Yeah, I have I have in front of me sort of a a running list of different incidents of Chinese censorship being taken into account by major movie productions. I'm going to just kind of run through them yeah. really quickly. Um, so one incident was with uh, James Bond Skyfall, uh, which finally got released in China in 2013. But this was only after references to prostitution prostitution in China were removed uh, from the movie and any references to Chinese police being kind of thuggish, as well as scenes in which uh, a Chinese police officer were shot. These were all removed from the film, and they they, they prohibited a release in China until this was done. Um, there were incidents in the Pirates of the Caribbean World's End, where sort of a character, Chao Yun, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of a Chinese character, um, not very well portrayed, kind of fat and villainous, um, was was 
uh, kept the movie out of the market um, until they had 10 minutes of his scenes removed so that there was no possible negative portrayal of a person who could be taken for Chinese. Uh, one big example, which I did not know about at all because we are having a very different debate here in the States, was with Doctor Strange and Tilda mm. Swinton as the yeah. ancient one. Yeah. Do you remember when Doctor Strange came out and sort of the think peace wars that we got into about whitewashing in yeah, American yeah. American media. And there was just all this anger in in the American kind of media environment about whitewashing the ancient one character who is a Tibetan monk and casting Tilda Swinton. But we didn't talk at all, and I didn't hear about the the angle of appeasing Chinese censors at all until mm-hmm. researching this story in this episode. That, actually, that was not what that was about. <laughs> no, and it, I actually followed this story rather closely because going years back, one of my favorite comedy podcasts, um, Night Attack, um, it's one of the first podcasts I ever listened to, but uh, one of their early good buddies back at, this was probably 2011, maybe um, was C Robert Cargill. And he would come on and guest on the show. And I remember like years later, like five years later, as he was trying to uh, make it in Hollywood as a, a screenwriter where he was finally able to reveal and announce that he had written the script uh, for Doctor Strange, and he was really excited about it. So, like, I, 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 I remember, like, I listened to podcasts of this dude before he quote unquote made it, and I, I followed him on Twitter, and now he's kind of known as a, a sort of screenwriting guru of sorts. Mm-hmm. On Twitter. He's very active uh, there, but at the time, the sort of U.S. debate about um, racism and filmmaking and whitewashing of uh, characters of uh, various races was a real debate at the time, but there's a whole nother element that you kind of alluded to, which is the idea that the character that Tilda Swinton plays, I'm trying to remember her name, um, but the she's ancient like one. the ancient one. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, in the, in the comics uh, hails from Tibet. And of course you get into the sort of political censorship where the Chinese government doesn't exo- acknowledge Tibet as it's as a place. Mm-hmm. Quite literally, it's and, and references to it are censored. Yeah, and it became a big deal for you know you you know that the producers at Marvel are thinking, well, all right, well, how do we uh, how do we address this issue and still be able to release this film? And it sounds like you know something that they definitely took into account. It was it was part of the way that they went about trying to figure out well, well how are we going to do this character how are we going to kind of make it work in the United States and then also make it work abroad um, and like you said it was it was the idea that they had to not make the character a Tibetan monk anymore because you can't acknowledge that Tibet exists as its own country there's there was also an incident with the Gap the clothing uh, the clothing franchise uh, where they had a a sweater that had the continent of China on it or you know the country oh, of China yeah. on it. And it did not include uh, Tibet. The the part of the map that was put on the the sweater did not include um, the the region of Tibet. And so they had to cancel the clothing line, or China would start closing gaps uh, inside the country. And so they apologized, and then they put out a statement affirming, you know, that Tibet is not a real place, and that it foments dissent, and that they don't support that. Okay. Um, and so, all right. So this is where all right. I'll, I'll, I've played the sort. I've I've min- Minimized my my personal political opinions here, but I do think it's important to recognize that this is this is kind of shameful. I mean, it, it really is because that this is a level of political censorship that um, actively not just harms freedom of expression. It, it it's the next step beyond that, and the whole reason why we value freedom of expression here in the United States so much. Um, it prevents people from being able to be represented in their own government. And that's where, that's where the issues with Hong Kong and with Tibet have, have, have been coming from. Yeah. And while I'm certainly no expert on the specifics of, of, of these um, political risings, I, I, the, the principle of it should be um, a company should be able to produce products that express a political opinion without fear of a government preventing that company from being in business. 
Yeah. Like that's a very fundamental thing that should be. Yeah. And, and, you know, we kind of, kind of got into it earlier when I was, when I was mentioning that, you know, you, you kind of debase yourself when you sort of adjust what, what your version of the truth is. And I, I think that China, I think China, if they want to participate in the global economy and particularly in entertainment uh, that's being produced, uh, you know, in the United States, they need to take it as it is or start coming up with their own stuff to keep their people fat, happy and entertained. Like, we're, we're complicit in making people comfortable with the government that they have in China, which is autocratic and, uh, and awful. And I think we can, we can objectively say that. And what I don't like is that, you know, a country, uh, a company like the Gap would then apologize and then say that, you know, they were wrong and kind of do the, the, uh, the, the correcting of self routine where they say like, we will do better. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. Like you're sort Sort of just you're 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 tricking yourself and deluding your own folks back home as to what the truth is of what happened here with this with this scandal or with this controversy. Um, but you know, again, Star Wars as as its own property, they they have for the most part, with the exception of that poster, sort of steer clear of this. But one incident um, that did a- arise was with Donnie Yen in Rogue One. He is a Hong Kong native. He's a he's a very popular Chinese actor. And he had talked about how he was reluctant to join the Rogue One production until Car- Gareth Edwards could convince him that he was not being hired and brought into the film in order to bring in Chinese audiences. He, he kind of felt like he was being tokenized and that the character was being written uh, just to increase the international appeal of Rogue One. And uh, he eventually felt assured and they did their due diligence there. But right there, you kind of have an admission of, of how the game is played. And someone like Donnie Yen, who understands the game, um, wanted to really be sure yeah. that they were serious about making uh, Chirrut a real character with real motivations. And, um, you know, I guess hats off to him. Yeah, and they did. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad that was the case because Rogue One as a film, I think, really benefited from it. Um, and withdrawing different cultural elements that we had that we know in our world uh, that we haven't really seen as much in Star Wars. But it, 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 that's why I love um, I, I love Rogue One. I, I, I get on a whole nother side tangent. I pulled up the the article you're talking about, and it's just and it blows my mind because uh, Rogue One didn't do great. Last Jedi, forty two million. That's all it made. Why, Riley? Why? Why do the Chinese not care for Star Wars? Well, and and this is this is kind of going back to Donnie Yen's point, but the idea of this universe that hasn't been a part of Chinese culture, there's a certain amount of Star Wars mythology that I think is just taken for granted, even here in the United States. I think Galaxy's Edge, how we started the show, kind of brings it full circle. They kind of took for granted interest in the in the parks, just assuming that everyone kind of knew about it and would want to come. And then they realized that, no, no, you have to have an entry point for someone who's not familiar with the mythology. And that's why I think especially a film like The Last Jedi doesn't resonate as much, because The Last Jedi, whatever you think about it, depends really heavily on the full saga that's come before it. Not just the prequels, yeah. not just The Force Awakens, uh, but, you know, all the way back to Yoda in Empire Strikes Back, like the whole the critical sort of turning point of the movie is a scene with I watched Yoda. some man on the street interviews with uh, with Chinese moviegoers who were, were reacting to some uh, a Chinese newspaper asking them what they thought about Star Wars and several and I mean, several of the people they kind of stopped on the street to ask them how they feel about Star Wars basically just said this they they said it was it was so long running they didn't know the backstory and they didn't really feel compelled to go see the last jedi which is not super action packed um and sort of contextless as so many marvel superhero movies can be where you can kind of catch up on the story very quickly um but you know these moviegoers and people on the street just said like i don't know what's going on in this story and i can't just jump into it right away yeah. no for sure 
Yeah. And that kind of goes back to that 1977 ban of Star Wars. You know, there's, there's not going to be there the culture of, ah, oh, you know, I remember being in line for the theater in 77 with my dad. And then my gosh, I took my child to the Phantom Menace in 1999. Mm-hmm. And, and now, you know, now I'm taking the grandkids to the next one. There's just not yeah. that built up generational nostalgia oh. in China. Um, and so they kind of go for more sort of quick hit entertainment. And that's why Marvel, I guess, kind of works better. Yeah. No, my dad introduced me to Star Wars from the original trilogy. And, and that's a thing. That is a thing in the U.S. That isn't a thing really in China. Yeah. Well, I guess to, to kind of to close us down here on the, on the subject of, of Star Wars, China and Disney, you know, Riley, what do you – we've talked about like what we want to see happen, the stand that we want to see t- be taken. But – are you hopeful? Are you hopeful that Disney as a company um, is going to be able to make the tough decisions and make the tough stands when it comes to the content in their movies? Like some of the things that they've done to appease Chinese censors are really small ball stuff with the exception of, I think the Dr. Strange Tilda Swinton situation. Um, But do you think that they have the potential to fall to the dark side and go further than they should? Ah, man, I, I think they do, but it's, it's contingent on, the American public and like we're seeing here this week, a lot of the, the outrage that has come. Um, And it's been, and here's the encouraging thing. It's been pretty bipartisan. Like you see both Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, both, you know, uh, one Senator from Texas, the other uh, who almost beat him (laughs) in his race on totally opposite ends of the political spectrum, both calling out, um, China and the censorship and pressure that they've put on the NBA. And so I, that I think is an encouraging sign that points to if there's that kind of pressure here, that's bipartisan, that is there's the almighty dollars always usually what gives a company the courage to act. But I think for these American companies as they, I think this week they're realizing, Oh, we have to redefine what we're willing to accept. Are they still going to compromise? Yes. But is like Google was faced with this decision not too long ago. Like, to what extent are we going to censor on behalf of the Chinese government uh, to have our you know products and services used there? And so I think the trend is in the positive direction, I guess. So I'm I'm look at me being uh, slightly, slightly, slightly optimistic. <laughs> slightly optimistic. I I'm not as optimistic. I, I won't uh, take up much more time. But I I think that we are losing our soul or have already lost our soul as a country um, when it comes to our civic virtues and our values and also sort of our our identity on the national stage. And I, as much as, as much of a, a, a capitalist as I can be, I think that even the most anti-capitalist of us, you know, those in Hollywood. So, so they, so they say, um, are, are happy to chase new markets and dollars wherever they can find them. And I, I don't think that they will take tough stands because they know that outrage kind of blows over like a storm and also that they can always find new audiences to shore up any lost, uh, you know, any lost profits and revenue. So um, I'm skeptical. I, I hope you're right, Riley. I hope you're right. With that, that brings us to our world-famous Bantha Fodder segment, where myself and guest co-host will share something that's been on their minds, Star Wars, politics, or otherwise, rant about it unfiltered and uninterrupted for however long they would like to. Uh, I'll start us off uh, uh, real quick here with what's been on my mind. So, you know, that gosh darn dreaded Joker film with Joaquin Phoenix. I am really annoyed if, if anyone of you follow me on Twitter about the melodrama that led up to its release. Yeah, yeah. To me, it is it is more evidence that we have an inflated economy of hot take media and think piece journalism that feeds on conflict, constantly stirring the pot and just generating conflict, even if there there was none previously. That way, clicks are driven, digital advertisers are happy, and writers get to write. Uh, writers like me, you know, I, I kind of participate in this to a certain extent. I'll, I'll admit, and we get to feud. Uh, we sort of the the consumers, the users on Twitter get to feud and tear at each other's hair on Twitter about movies that none of us have even seen yet. 
and then go to theaters with heightened anxiety about our physical safety because of this sort of astroturf industry of making people angry and scared about the content of films and, and the political controversies that follow them. The idea that Joker was some sort of incel anthem was always laughable. And when the movie actually came out, it was shown to be laughable in reality. And it was a fine movie. And I mean, just like literally it was fine. It was, it was bleak. It was mellow. It had a, a, a good point at the end. It was well shot. It was beautiful. Joaquin Phoenix was magnificent. Um, but you know, the movie just wasn't that shocking. Honestly, when it got to the climax, I was like, really? That was it. This was the, the violence that was going to, uh, to spur shootings in theaters around the country. Uh, you know, bull crap. I, I, I call bull. And uh, I, think, I think moviegoers around the country did too. And um, the media and critics of these movies who are politically motivated and always acting in bad faith, I think that they uh, just weren't happy, honestly, that things didn't go their way and that the movie was not as charged as they would have liked it to have been and still found ways to report on scandal around the Joker regardless. Um, it was all really shameless and really sad. It's totally fine to say the movie just wasn't good. <laughs> it's totally fine to say the movie was shallow or it's totally fine to say the movie had a, a bad portrayal um, of, of those who deal with mental illness, which I think is probably true. Um, but to, to say that it was a, a danger to public safety was always nonsense and was revealed to be as well. So Riley Blanton, What's your bantha fodder? What's got gotcha? you? Yeah, I got some bantha fodder. Um, I, I know it's not really part of the format, but I, I have to say, I did literally just see it two days ago. And that that is exactly the case because that's where the sort of reactionary world of media has real world consequences. As I walked by two armed policemen, as I went through the theater door to purchase my uh, ticket and then another armed the um, policeman, not like security, but actual like local police officers who would normally not be at my local movie theater. Um, and, and this is one of those moments you're like, wow, yeah, this is, I guess this is where we are. I guess this is what we're, this is how we're spending our Friday night. Um, but no, but my, um, my bantha fodder is not to, to do with that. My bantha fodder has to do with one Freddie Prince Jr. Yeah. You hear about this? You hear about this? Uh, oh Steven? yeah. I love uh, this. <laughs> <laughs> Here's here. Allow me to introduce something all too foreign to the world of star Wars, uh, media nuance. Hopefully <laughs> that's my goal here. Cause for my bantha fodder, I watched the clip of, of, um, Freddie Prinze Jr. ranting about Star Wars is for kids and F you if you disagree with me, <laughs> which is kind of the short version of the rant. Um, but here's the thing. If you go back and listen to it, because he digs into a sort of like theories on the force and how he learned from Dave Filoni, who learned from George Lucas and kind of adds that air of legitimacy. But he's here's what I love about the rant. And this is what I think we as Star Wars fans, whether we're on the sort of like pro Last Jedi, it's awesome, or like everything Disney Star Wars sucks, whatever side of that spectrum you're on, I think one thing that we should all appreciate is how beautifully rare it is to see someone involved in Star Wars sharing that level of honesty and passion and, yes, opinion um, freely with fans. It's it's not prepackaged. Oh, okay. you know, playing Kanan was great. He's the cowboy Jedi. Rat, rat. No, he actually he's ha, has passionate opinions about it. Is he confrontational? Does he swear a lot? Yes. Do I disagree with um, some of his take on the Force and that like Star Wars is only for kids and people who disagree are all like thirty five year old men in their basement and they don't deserve Star Wars anyway? No, I don't agree with that. But that's okay because I want in the interest of having a more open and honestly interesting dialogue, uh, I think we as fans should have the ability to welcome these kinds of opinions and not take personal offense to, to every, every little thing that happens like this. And that's what, that's where you have the, 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 the YouTube channels that, you know, analyze and rant about every Pablo tweet while those were a thing. Uh, and then, uh, or, or on the opposite, the side that basically anyone who disagrees with the direction of Disney Star Wars is racist or sexist. And you have these sort of extreme opinions that vary along the, uh, along the middle where most people don't, don't actually go to that extreme. So I think I really appreciated his gut honesty and reaction 
Um, even though I might disagree with some of the subtleties of his point. So Freddie Prince Jr. Keep doing it. I like yeah. you. Authenticity all the way. That does um, it for episode 74 of Beltway Bantha's Star Wars Politics and More. I am your host, Stephen Kent, and I've been joined today by Riley Blanton. Riley, where can folks find and follow more of your incredible work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, two places. The Star Wars stuff is just the Star Wars report. You can find it on any podcatcher you use. Uh, go check it out each week. We kind of do a hour or so episode on the latest and greatest from Star Wars, kind of whatever the fan community is talking about. That's what we're talking about. Um, it's very kind of uh, fan discussion driven podcast. And I have a lot of fun. Uh, the other um, the other place is, of course, Mouse and Castle, which is kind of the new project. I guess it's not so new now. I've been going at it a little over a year. But me and my buddy Aaron uh, talk all things Disney and Disney parks. So if that's your thing, check out the Mouse and Castle wherever you listen to podcasts. And Stephen, thanks for having me, man. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, this has been a great deal of fun. Thank you for joining me on short notice to, uh, to help me with this podcast and share some of your insights and expertise about Disney. Mm. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent eight, nine and Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas. Please subscribe to the podcast episodes every other week and leave us a review. My gosh, that would be so kind of you to do. And maybe you can do that on Podchaser. This is a, a kind of a cool new service that I've started using that is like the IMDB of the podcasting world and traces all of the appearances of podcasters like Riley and myself that um, that that you might like or follow and, and you're able to sort of find every show that they've ever been on or been a guest on and appeared. Um, it's really, really neat and I, that's where I'm kind of trying to drive people to do reviews of this show so that it shows up on every platform. I can't recommend it enough. Um, and with that, that is the end of episode 74, Star Wars in the Middle Kingdom. Thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you. Always.